I'm Shauna Van Bogart, and this is Just Being Seen. When my husband and I were first dating, there was a week where Jay had lost his keys. And for various reasons, which I won't get into here, that meant that he didn't have access to his car. Now, the reason that this memory stands out so much to me is that as I witnessed him move through this experience of not having access to his car, I remember feeling completely enamored because his entire attitude during this week without access to his car and his keys was just calm, cool, and collected. And that is a direct opposite attitude that I would have had if it were me in that situation. My nature, especially at that time, is to be a rule follower. I was very rigid. I was wound up very tight. I took things very seriously. I was over responsible for a lot of stuff in my life. And I was one of those people that like rules are meant to be followed. And if you break them or if you make mistakes or if you screw up, there are massive consequences. And so if I would have lost my keys and I didn't have access to my car, like it would have been a massive internal thing for me. And to watch him so calm, cool, collected navigate this week without his keys, without his car, get around the city in taxi cabs, because this is before Uber, this is before all of that, and seemingly acting as if this is not a thing at all was just so attractive to me, right? And that's how it goes when you first start dating. It's like all of these quirks and all of these different things are just seen through rose-colored glasses and perhaps are more attractive than they actually are. But for me, I was smitten over this. If I'm being honest, it was probably one of the things that was the tipping point for me with him to see him navigate that because that's what I wanted. I wanted that ability to be relaxed. I wanted that ability to be calm, cool, collected. And at this time in my life, I don't even think I understood truly what relaxation actually felt like. I would do air quotes, relaxing things, but my internal world was far from relaxed. I was very, very uptight internally. And so we were polar extremes. Of course, that was attractive to me. And if I were to define this in its simplicity, he was someone who challenged the rules. He was someone that questioned the rules. He was someone that bucked against authority. And I was the complete opposite. I was someone who thought rules are meant to be followed. I was someone that authorities are there for a reason and you follow them without questions. It honestly wouldn't have even really crossed my mind to challenge authorities because authorities were authorities for a reason. And so you just follow the rules. Now, the funny thing about this entire experience of him losing his keys and me finding this just like so attractive and enamoring is that what I didn't realize is that he was likely so calm, cool, and collected because this was kind of just the norm for him. <laughs> so if you don't know, my husband has ADHD and keys and ADHD do not play well together. Losing keys is a running joke in our household, which is why we aim to be a completely keyless household because having keys does not work. It does not work for Jay. It does not work for us. And so as we continue to date and go on to be married, I realized that, oh, he was so calm, cool and relaxed about it because he loses his keys all the time. So this was a completely normal thing for him, right? Until we found effective ways to solve that problem. The other funny thing about this is that Jay had a boat parked in his driveway at the time. And at some point when he had come home 
and he was cleaning out the boat. He had hung his keys on the trailer. So every day that week, as he's lost his keys, he was walking right by them in and out of his front door with his keys hanging practically at eye level off the trailer of his boat. They were literally right in front of his face. I would also argue he could navigate that situation so relaxed because there was a part of him that knew his keys were there somewhere. They weren't lost. They were just misplaced, which was true because he's done this before. Coming from polar extremes, as we've been married and been together now for over a decade, we've gravitated towards center. We've pulled each other towards center and we've pulled each other into this really beautiful balance. Because if I'm being honest with myself, I needed it. Like I needed someone like Jay to pull me out of the rigidity and to help me see the power and to see the good in challenging the rules, to help me see the wisdom there is in questioning the rules, to help me see that there are times when you do need to look at authorities in your life and you need to question them. And many lessons for him, vice versa. For most of my life and most of my early adulthood, my entire aim, at least unconsciously, was on being a good person. And I thought that being a good person meant you follow rules. I thought being a good person is you respect authority. You don't question them. It's very much this good girl attitude. And at many points of my life and my career, I had to realize that for me to be and do the kind of person that I wanted to be and the success that I wanted to achieve, I had to let that shit go. I had to get honest with myself about how well that good girl complex was really working for me. And what complemented that good girl attitude was a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of I'm right, this is wrong, a lot of black and white thinking. There was a lot of judgment because I was in a place where you follow the rules, you're a good person. If you break the rules, you're a bad person. I mean, there was no shade of gray for me. It was that black and white. So of course, of course, that lends itself to a lot of judgment outward. And it leads to a lot of inner unhappiness because you're holding yourself to standards that are rigid. I was seeing myself constantly through the lens of what the external wanted me to be, what society wanted me to be, what these rules that I had in place that I created, that my entire worldview was constructed from, what that all meant I had to be in this lifetime. It required a lot of shape-shifting because then no matter who I decided to place as an authority in my life, whether it was business mentors or even my partner, even Jay, for example, then of course I'm going to have to shape-shift into being what I thought was right, what I thought was what that person and those things wanted out of me. That was a sort of indirect rule-following. So this is where we have to recognize that, yes, we grow up into a certain worldview that is constructed. It's constructed by nature of our responses to our experiences growing up, what we see growing up, our caregivers, our parents, our teachers, et cetera. And we create this worldview that we say, these are the rules that we operate from, and these are the rules to success. 
you know, when you do any kind of money mindset work, one of the kind of major cornerstones of that work is looking at the rules that you're currently following. So for example, I see a lot of rules like in order to make a lot of money, you have to sacrifice your personal life. Or in order to make a lot of money, you have to work 15 hour days for years. Or if you use debt, then you are risking becoming an irresponsible person or you can't make the kind of money that you want and also be a parent, right? There's different rules that we're all following. Most of these rules we have inherited. I mean, inherited as in we get them because they were the air quotes rules our parents followed and our grandparents followed. So they're inherited from generation after generation. They're also inherited unconsciously as we experience different things. So if we move through challenging circumstances or if we move through trauma, right, our responses to those things create beliefs, create narratives that essentially become these rules. At a certain point in my life, it was time to recognize that this good girl complex had to be released. Really what that was all about was initiation into my own inner authority, my own self-agency. And in order to do that, I first had to get clear on what rules I had been operating from. It's like you can't break the rules if you first don't master the rules. And so I had to use my tools of self-awareness and mindfulness to look at where I was believing certain things and where those beliefs turned into, here's the rules of operating in life to get success. And then I had to question those rules. Then I had to push against those rules. Then I had to break those rules. And then I had to create new rules. What I recognized in doing this work for myself is that breaking rules was a nervous system thing for me. Like breaking any kind of rule was not okay. I had a lot, a lot predicated on being a good person and following rules. And so if I was going to go to a different level of satisfaction, of happiness, and that meant that I had to step out of the framework of these rules that I was innately following, then I was first going to have to learn how to regulate myself when it came to breaking those rules. Now, what I've discovered for myself is that because I am naturally a rule follower, I've had a lot more success in learning how to leverage that by just evolving my rules rather than thinking I need to move to some place where I operate out of total rebellion because that doesn't work either. So it's constantly this up-leveling and this sort of game of asking myself, okay, what are the rules, which I would call actually your values that I wanna operate from right now? If you've been in Mind Over Matter program, you know that towards the end of the program, I have you create these value statements and I have you create them because they're essentially your defined rules for how you're going to operate at that current phase of your life. It sort of gives you that new paradigm. It gives you that new worldview in which to operate from because I do believe having certain parameters, having certain boundaries, having certain air quotes rules in place actually afford you more freedom. They afford you more agility. It's just that you have to have the right rules in place. I grew up in a, a evangelical church. Specifically, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Our churches were, our homes rather, were very much influenced by the church. Uh, we had lots of rules. I mean, I, I could go into them, but I won't. But like many of the rules, like 
ladies couldn't wear pants and at some point guys couldn't wear shorts and you know you couldn't go to uh basketball games and you couldn't go to the movies and it was all these things and so our houses were very much ruled by that this is michael weston he is a dear dear friend of mine and an identity strategist by label but he's so 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 much more i've worked with him personally on and off he has an amazing gift for seeing people and especially for helping them break free from the imposed rules so they can liberate themselves. Michael is one of my most favorite humans on the planet and his journey is so fascinating. And what you're about to hear is how he went from following the rules to gracefully breaking them and the repercussions of that. Growing up, because I was born into that, it was normal, right? It's like, well, you just don't do these things. It's just not a part of your life. Now, Michael is giving what I feel to be one of the more extreme examples of growing up with certain rules. I like to point to sometimes the extreme examples so that we can kind of trickle that down into our own experiences to see the lessons and the wisdom that can be gleaned here. You know, so when you think about your own households, I know for me growing up and we've kind of touched on this before, it was like, you go to school, you go to college. It wasn't even a question. It just was assumed that that's what you do. Like those are the rules for success, right? You get good grades, you get a job. And so as you listen to this interview and you listen to Michael, I want you to think about the rules of your life as dictated by your upbringing and the authorities in your life. When anybody's born into any social institution, um, be it family, be it church, you know, when you're born into it, it seems normal. It's fine. And so I think the part of the reason why it was so normal for me and was okay for me is because it was a part of my daily life. When I started like having contrary thoughts, I think that's what the, the point where I'm going, okay. Um, I think there's something different about me, but you know, because of the way that I was raised, you know, we were taught, so to speak, that you're innately wrong, right? That just by human nature, we are bad and we need a savior outside of us to to do something for us. And so because you live with this paradigm that there's something wrong with you, you learn to suppress what those, you know, quote unquote, your voice internally or the voices that come to you internally and the things that come to you internally. And this is how it works, right? We do need rules. We need certain guidelines for life. We put our trust in our authorities to help us learn how to air quote, survive, how to succeed in life and success as they've defined it. And then as we age and you're on your own two feet and as the world changes and as things innovate, it's healthy to start getting curious. It's healthy to start questioning the beliefs, to start questioning the rules. For Michael, he started doing church ministry from the age of eight. By the time he was 13, he was preaching and then he was traveling to preach by the time he was 18. When he was 23 or so, he told me, he said he took over a pastoral role in the church and he was pastoring about 75% of the church, both youth and adults. In that space, I really started hearing this internal voice a lot louder <laughs> because people were coming to me at that point uh, for insight, for guidance, for, and I was having to give them spiritual advising, things like that. And I think at that point was when I realized, and the way that I often say it is that I was giving people their liberty, but I wasn't taking it myself. Maybe you can relate. Offering others insight and wisdom and answers and guidance and leadership that maybe you need to hear as well for yourself and you're not offering that to yourself. I think this is one of the earliest symptoms of what I would call an integrity gap. 
And it's not a one-time life occurrence. It happens every time we're on the edge of some form of growth spurt. It's a symptom really of expansion. It's a cue for expansion. You know, you hear people talk about imposter syndrome. And I think at a certain level, whenever you start to feel those feelings come up that I'm an imposter or just any of the symptoms that go along with imposter syndrome, you realize that in and of itself, it's its own cue for expansion. It's a signal to yourself that, hey, maybe you've outgrown a space that you're actually at. Maybe this isn't so much about you're not good enough in this space. Maybe it's just about it's not for you in this way anymore. It's not for you at all. I also want you to step back and ask yourself, where are you making things okay for them, but it's not okay for you? Where are you allowing other people the liberation, but for whatever reason, and it's usually deeply unconscious, it's not okay for you? Michael started saying things that were contrary to the rules when he started in his pastoral role. He had instances where he was preaching and people would walk out on him. His entire circle, his family, his friends, all of them were in this environment. They were all very involved with this. So I imagine it felt very isolating for him. My environment, my circle of friends was very much that. And so it's difficult to talk about things when, you know, they call it deconstruction in like the Christian world is called deconstruction. And so when you're going through deconstruction, it's hard to talk to anybody in that space because they're very much married to. And again, you're talking about most people who are brought up in this. And so in the same way that I thought it was normal, so do they. And then you add an element of making God happy. And, and it's like, if I go against this, then therefore God is not happy with me. And so there's this, this, mental prison that happens where you can't really diverge from thought patterns that have existed previously and you can't emerge into new ones. Now, some of you might relate personally, but we can take this example and even see it play out in business, especially the kind of audience that I work with, typically a female business owner operating a virtual based business in the service industry it can oftentimes feel like if we don't follow the rules, if we don't do what all of the gurus tell us is the way to success, it's not going to work. I've talked to a lot of people or even my clients and those in my High Minds group or in my Mind Over Matter program who talk about feeling and knowing these concepts about trust and about patience and about surrender. These things are very important, but following them, trusting them, being in that in terms of a belief system where you take action from that place can kind of feel isolating. It can feel awkward. It can feel like you're very alone because it looks like no one else is doing it that way. So you must be the one who's wrong. I like to give that disclaimer whenever I do run a program that, listen, you might feel some tension When you start going deeper into the concepts to recognize your wholeness and to be in your truth, because it may feel very contrasting to the noise and the people around you. And you have to have a certain kind of mental tenacity to break through all of that noise and stick to the voice that's emerging from within you. I remember one specific instance where a young lady was just like, came to me and she was just really just down and out because of some things she had quote unquote done. And I, I looked at her after she probably spilled out her guts for like an hour. I was like, yeah, you're fine. You're good. <laughs> and she had this like most shocked look on her face. And I said, no, you're, you're fine. I said, you're, you're good. No problem. 
And I remember just like the sigh of relief that she took, but that was not a space that I walked in. That was not a liberty that I gave myself because internally I'm constantly questioning and things like that. And so it got to a point, honestly, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably have to say this like very lightly, but you know, it got to a point where I was all but suicidal and it was like, okay, <laughs> something's got to give because at this point I am suppressing this internal conversation so much. So now that it's causing me to have like harmful thoughts against myself, because at this point, if I can't trust this knowing that I just don't want to live. And it really was that serious for me. Talk about the pain of trying to force yourself in a box and how much worse that can feel when it seems like others get the space to do that, but you don't for whatever reason. Other people get to have that kind of freedom. Other people get to have that kind of even abundance or other people get to have that kind of happiness, but it doesn't seem like it's available to you. To take it back to a lighter example in business, I ask business owners all the time, I know you know it's possible because you can point to examples around you of where people have amassed the kind of wealth you're looking for, have the kind of numbers that you want, but do you think it's possible for you? Like, and sit with that answer in a somatic way. Sit with it in your body, like get really honest with yourself. I know you think it's possible, but do you think it's possible for you? And if you're sensing, oh gosh, I think I don't think it's possible for me, get curious about that. Where does that come from? Follow that voice, get to know it really well. I asked Michael, how did he manage to liberate himself, especially if he felt isolated since all of his personal connections were in that same environment and did all believe the things that he was kind of sensing he wanted to break away from? Well, I think that's where their teaching worked against them because they taught us to to listen to God and say what God says. I can only describe it as an outer body experience. You know, now I'm so much more connected to it and I live through that every day, that voice and that knowing. But, you know, it was like an outer body experience where I'm like, hey, this is coming to me and I'm going to say it. I remember like just preparing sermons and I would battle like with the notes I was writing. And so I wouldn't write down things. And then while I'm talking, it comes back up. There was something that knowing in me was looking to come out. They used to tell us, be prepared, be anointed and be seated. You know, when they talk about being anointed, they were talking about really tapping into that, that God, that divine nature and that divine voice. And so when I would allow that to happen. And when I would open myself up to diverge from my notes and to, and to go away is when those, those contradictory thoughts would come up. And of course, then, you know, I can tell them, well, it's the anointing. I think just as human nature, just looking at our, our uh, judicial system, the thing, you know, just think looking at our legal system and how it's set up, we think very punitively, right? We think very like you do this and this happens. We think right and wrong. I have kind of just completely abandoned that concept and really just leaned into, is it true or is it not true? Right. Because true is something that is, and what is not true is something that is not simply put. And so me abandoning that thought pattern has happened, but on a day-to-day basis for us as individuals, as human beings, I think it serves us to remove the punitive measures from our thought processes and allow ourselves to be, if we would shift from the concept of if I don't do this this particular way, then I'm going to be punished because really most of the punishment that we experience in our lives outside of maybe the ones that we receive when we were children, 
we inflict upon ourselves because of our our mental positioning. I'm still waiting for the judgment of God to come upon me in the ways that they said it would, but I haven't had the hard life that they told me that I would have. And so I think when you are going to the space where you're having to trust this voice to live by, not just to get up in front of people and talk about, but to live by when you're trusting this voice, it's going to require you to tap into a level of trust in yourself. Self-punishing. I see this with receiving a lot. I see people effectively break from the inherent rules that are no longer serving them, but they don't break away from the punishment. So it's like I see people make the moves that they need to make that are important and in alignment and in integrity with where they're headed and who they really are. But simultaneously, they're self-inflicting a punishment for doing so because it's unknown territory. It's scary. You're breaking the rules. And so you have to look at both. You have to look at liberating yourself. You have to look at breaking free and choosing the rules that you want to follow and stepping into that, the actual movements. And you have to look at what are you receiving? You have to get clear on receiving the benefits of that and intending to receive the benefits of that and anticipating where you might want to self-inflict the punishment that the old culture would tell you goes along with breaking the rules. This is why I talk about receiving so much in my work because there are so many people making the moves, whether it's strategy or they're doing the self-work, they're doing the abundance work, they're getting clear on their money mindset. And so they're making all these moves, but they're responding to it from the old place still. They're responding to it in a way that is punitive because they were taught these rules mean something, but then they were also taught that breaking these rules also means something. And so you have to get clear on it from both angles. I am more interested in saving my life than saving face. You know, for me, that's the place that I was in when I made that transition is like, I felt like I was saving my life. And so I didn't really care at that point, you know, whether they thought this about me, felt that way about me. And so I think just as we're navigating life, it's so important for us to go inward. The moment that I realized that whatever that spiritual knowing was is in me. That's really what changed my life. And that's really what I try to get people to understand that I say that everything that you need to be is already in you. And so I think that's the major part for me is once I went inward is when my whole existence really began to shift. If you haven't gotten the point of this podcast, <laughs> the point is go inward because that is where your discernment to sift through all of the voices is found. Even the best coaches and mentors can, yes, point that stuff out. It's so much easier when you have a third party holding a reflection back and being able to communicate that back to you so you really see it. But even that is still an external voice. When you learn and when mentors and coaches can show you how to slow things down so that you can go inward and can show you how to sift through all of those voices that are coming through and to really listen, that's when you're going to have some of the most profound and powerful shifts. Whenever it feels like you're about to break away from the crowd, and we could even use the voices in your head as the crowd, you know, the ego voice or the voices that are wanting to follow the old inherent rules that have been told to you, these are the rules that make it work, despite all the evidence of it not working, right? Whenever you make a move to start questioning that, 
even within yourself, you're going to feel that resistance. Then take it to the next level of being surrounded in an environment who also was playing into that. You're going to feel that resistance even more. So I asked Michael, how did he navigate that resistance? I felt a lot of resistance um, in general, just just growing up and being in that environment. I felt a lot of resistance anyway. So I think at a certain point I became immune to the resistance because there was so much resistance. Just, you know, I'm a charismatic guy. I'm free spirited. You know, at times I can be a, a little bit boisterous and there's an aversion to that in a space that teaches you to be controlled. And so I, I think that. I realized after a while it didn't pose any real threat. People are going to get mad. People are going to say things, which taught me, though, not to give much adherence to the things that people say about me or think about me. So remember that that threat, that punishment of straying from the group and stepping outside the norm to liberate yourself, whatever that might look like for you, that punishment comes through other people. Right. Like that punishment and that pushback comes through the lens. Think all the way back to episode two, where we talked about the fear of being ostracized. That is a fear that we have about other people doing something, saying something to us. So we have to realize as well that we also have the power to disengage from that threat by learning how to care less what people think by using your mind in the other direction because your mind is the thing that is running away with the story of punishment. So we can use it in the other direction to lean into, what if I do have the capacity to care less? What if I do have the capacity to liberate myself and not feel the punishment and break successfully away from the rules and thrive? We talk about the need to feel safe to make some of these moves. And what Michael is saying and what we're saying is you have to understand that you might not feel that safety in that moment. You might not feel that right away, but it is about then prioritizing something beyond that safety to help motivate you to move forward. I really didn't feel safe. To be honest, at that time, I didn't feel safe. I didn't know that I was creating a safe space. I was willing to deal with the consequence of not being safe to get to the place where I felt free more than anything. Talk about a dynamic that has been perpetuated throughout time. When the group, which we survived in for safety, becomes the very threat that caused you to come together in the first place. Not because anything has changed, but because you have evolved. Not that you've changed either, but your thoughts have evolved. Where sure, the group may feel air quotes safe, but do you feel free? Because going along with things, people pleasing, all of that is the safe thing to do. But when you step back and ask yourself, do I actually feel like I'm making progress here though? You might find your answer is no. So I asked Michael what he did next. I walked away. I I walked away. I I walked away from my position at the church. I ended up walking away from a marriage. I walked away from other things I was involved with. I I just walked away because I realized that if I'm going to have the power in my life, I can't continue to be put out of places. I can't continue to, you know, escape places. I have to knowingly and willingly walk away. And that came with a number of things that 
I wish I, on one end, like I, I would say, I wish I could avoid it came with familial issues. I think I need to clarify that is that not only was I doing this, I was very public. I was very upfront. It felt like that everything and everyone was against me. That doesn't feel safe. That doesn't feel safe. But when you get to a point where you make a decision that, okay, I require peace. I require freedom. I require direction. Even you will go into that internal place. And I think you know, I think sometimes people have to get to a place where they they're more dedicated to their internal knowing the internal peace, because me, I prioritize everybody else's everything for a long time. What do you require right now in your life and how can you give that to yourself and what will it require of you to give that to yourself? This is why it's so important to go inward, spend time with yourself, get curious about all of the things happening inside of your mind, inside of your body, as you explore this stuff. We have to question the idea and concept of safety even as it's been taught to us. I had so long realized that what I was doing did not work. And so I had to consider perhaps it doesn't feel safe to make this change, to make this transition, but perhaps it's more safe. Somewhere along my journey, as we're talking about comfort zones here, I realize this narrative that we hear in culture, in books, in business, that, you know, step outside of your comfort zone. That's where your success is found, et cetera. Upon deep reflection, I realized that what was happening within me was a lot of discomfort, you know? And so here I was feeling highly uncomfortable almost all the time in a state of hypervigilance almost all of the time. And it was so normalized within me that I didn't even realize that I was uncomfortable most of the time. You know, it wasn't until I started actually experiencing the sensation of comfort that I realized the contrast of like, whoa, I actually am so uncomfortable most of the time. And I've normalized that, that I realized, well, of course I'm experiencing all this friction around this concept of showing up or this concept of stepping outside of your comfort zone because I have spent my life outside of the comfort zone. And so one thing for me, and maybe some of you listening, that is important to understand or realize for yourself is, what if this is about needing more comfort? What if it's about rising above that narrative that our mind wants to tell us, that society wants to tell us is important, and being really discerning about what's happening within you to realize that maybe you also have been uncomfortable most of your life. And this is about stepping into the comfort of yourself. What if it's not that big of a risk to be yourself? What if it's not that it's going to feel totally uncomfortable and awkward? What if it's actually more comfortable on the other side? And what if you could buy into that now as you take the leap to put more of the real you out there? Another thing that's really important coming up listening to Michael talk is taking close audit of your life, checking in from time to time to see how you relate to it all. How do you feel about the things that you're doing? At the beginning of my Mind Over Matter program, the very first module, we do what I call a vision verification because we can't do anything until we get the false perceptions out of the way. We can't make space. We can't jump into that abundant identity. We can't step into the real desires that we want 
if we're still holding on to things that our mind has convinced us we want, but the real us doesn't really want. So we have to take audit. We can't always trust what our mind wants to tell us because the mind is often indoctrinated with thoughts that are not truly compatible with our future desires. And especially our subconscious mind, definitely not typically compatible with what our future desires really are because our future desires require change in order to get them. They require stepping into the unknown. They require trust. And the subconscious doesn't love the unknown. We have to be able to drop into our body somatically and ask ourselves, how do I feel towards this thing I'm pursuing right now in my life? Or how do I feel about this vision and this path that I've been on? Has it changed? Is it still about this? Is it for me anymore? You heard Michael say he walked away from many things, including a marriage. One thing I haven't yet mentioned is that when I met Michael and as I've always known Michael, he was in a relationship with a man. So as we were talking, I'm realizing the depths to which he was feeling contrary to his environment and how specifically his identity as it related to his intimate relationships might have further exacerbated this discomfort. Everything with my life, you could weave it back into something with church, everything. And so you talk about sexuality, sexuality is weaved in the church. As a matter of fact, it's the most talked about thing in churches. Like it's, it's the thing. The pastor that I grew up under uh, spent months talking about fornication. <laughs> you know, they had this saying, they would say, touch, not taste, not handle, not. And it was, everything was sexual. And so anything sexual in church was already just taboo. And so even just with sexuality, things like that, that was a, a battle for me. And then, you know, me being in a pastoral role, there is pressure. And, and really it's an unspoken rule sometimes that, you know, if you're going to pastor, you have to be married because, you know, they don't, they don't believe, you know, in the, in specifically in the environment that I grew up in, in that particular set that I was in, they don't believe that you can be a pastor and not be married. Michael says he didn't know at the time that getting married was really motivated by the experience of his environment. It's like what I said earlier, you know, there was no question in my upbringing for a millennial my age that you get good grades, you go to college, right? Like there was just not really a question about that for, I should say, my socioeconomic status and the generation that I was in. And so listening to him talk about why he got married, it kind of makes you wonder if you were liberated from the worldview you inherited, would you still make the decisions that you made in the past or even now? You know, I got married because I had a very, very close friend and we, we just jailed. And I, and I said, hey, I can do this. It, it was just simple, simple as that. Like, it wasn't like, you know, I'm, I'm madly in love. I'm, it, it was just like, hey, I can do this. If, if I've got to do this and if I've got to live this life, I can do this with you because like we're good. And so like my identity was tethered so much to that structure, tethered so much to that belief system. And so it was it was very intuitive of me to leave it, not because I have an issue with it, but based on who I am, we're always going to be at war. We're always going to be, you know, in conflict. What I love so much about Michael and how he's navigated his life is that if you read between the lines, he's never making anyone else or anything else wrong in order for him to identify with himself. That is so powerful and so rare these days. He exited 
from his environment, from a place of growth. He didn't exit from a place of anger. He didn't exit by making them wrong or being able to justify his moves by pointing the finger at anyone else. He was able to intuit, we are always going to be in conflict because that's who I am and then be able to choose differently for himself. I asked him if at this point, and even at that point, was he identifying as a gay man? And if so, how did that contribute to his departure? As an individual, as an individual, I don't like to view people through the lens of anything other than who and what they are, just in general. I'll never forget a a scenario where I talked to somebody very close to me. Uh, They were in a conversation with somebody else and somebody mentioned something about me and my sexuality. And they asked me, you've never been with a dude, have you? I was like, yeah, you know. Just, you know, outright. And of course, it was very much against whatever. But I'll never forget Then I was set up stage with the intervention <laughs> where they're trying to get me not to be friends with certain people. And it was just a whole thing after that. I, I, I feel like and I believe that identity is in constant flux. Right. And when I say flux, I mean flow. At one point, I was a, a preacher at heart, so to speak. Right. I was. But because identity is constantly evolving and shifting, then I no longer identify as that. And I guess for me, when we talk about preference of a relationship or, you know, even when we talk about sexual preference, I just think we shouldn't even tether that to our identity. Right. We should say, perhaps this is a part of me. Right. And this is a part of the, of the reality of who I am. Yes. But at the end of the day, I think just when we're navigating identity, it goes so much deeper and so much more vast. And it's so much more than just what the things that we can label. And so uh, do I identify that? Yes and no. Right. Um, I, I, I think that's the best way I can say that. Yes and no. You can even see what I was saying just earlier here. He doesn't make himself wrong for his past choices. He doesn't make anyone else wrong for his choices. And I think it can be easy when we're on this journey to evolve and to become more of ourselves, to be seen as more of ourselves. It's like we think it's this destination to be reached and then it's like, okay, we're done, we're there. Like I've become me, I've arrived, I'm good. Like when we talked about unfolding into ourselves, like we'll completely unfold the box and there we are. But that's not exactly how it works. Identity is in constant flow. We shift, we change. And that doesn't make past iterations of ourselves wrong. If we are on this journey, we can't make ourselves wrong in any way. That's not to say we won't do wrong things, by the way, but I'm saying if we're going to give ourselves permission to liberate ourselves, you have to do it in every direction, including behind you. We have to love where we've been at. We have to love past versions of ourselves. We have to love the versions of ourselves that our mind wants to point to and say they should have known better. I know I've experienced many times on my self-growth path that When you have one of those lightning bolt moments where you see a situation for what it really is, when previously you thought you were right, like you were convinced this is my belief, I believe it's right. And then you have one of those moments and you step back and you go, whoa, now I'm seeing it totally different. It can be really easy to go into that headspace of, oh my gosh, how did I not know better? How did I not see it? I should have known better. And I wanna say back to that part of you that wants to say I should have known better, that clearly you didn't at the time. It's so easy to say that in retrospect. 
but forgive yourself for all of the times in the past where you didn't have that control and that sight. Forgive yourself for ever thinking that you needed to control things that couldn't possibly be controlled. And even if that part of you wants to say, but what I did was wrong and I did know better and I see now that I should have known better. What if it has nothing to do with you being right or wrong at all? What if it's just a thing happened? What if instead of continuing to punish yourself for being human, you forgave yourself for ever thinking that you needed to be so perfect all of the time? You get to be wrong every now and then. It is part of the human experience. It's a privilege, really. You get to be wrong every now and then. And I know that part of you wants to come back on the line and say, but I need to be on top of it because I, I don't want to make these mistakes in the future. I know it can maybe want to go into a hypervigilant state. And to that, I would say, you trying to know better in the present moment about something you know nothing about because you've never been here is the most unproductive thing that you could attempt to do. So you just be. You just be awake, connected, intuitive in the present state that you're in. And instead of trying to be the expert with ultimate control, you release right and wrong entirely and you just maneuver from your heart. You just be here. You trust you're here for a reason. You trust you know, and you trust that all moves are the right moves, even if you realize later a mistake is made. And then you ask yourself how many days you wake up with this insane pressure to be all things to all people, to have the answers all the time. A lot of times your actual wisdom is being overshadowed with the mental mind's need to control, driven by knowledge and appreciation of the facts. I wanna say to you that it is safe for you to just be. It's safe to just be in the unknown, to just trust yourself. It's safe to operate from the heart. You have a unique truth that is unique to this very present moment. And it's your truth. And not only is it safe, this kind of presence is actually what you're seeking. So try this on. You are not a bad person because you discovered an improvement in yourself or you've now leveled up your perspective and you see things from the past and you look back and you feel a little tinge about who you used to be. This is part of the improving process. This is part of the coming into you process, having the compassion for the self, for the things you didn't know, having compassion for the self in the past and for the unseen perspective in the past. And guess what? Right now, you also have a sense of unseen perspective that later will come into clarity. Sometimes I think we get into resistance around making the changes necessary to grow, to improve, to pivot, and to follow our heart's direction because we then have to perhaps face or admit that things in the past were not right. We have to then step up to admit that what we've been doing maybe doesn't work or that we haven't been seeing it correctly. And I think that fear for a lot of us, which is also deeply subconscious, is really intense, especially if there was an intense punitive aspect of that that was inherited. 
And that is often what gets in our way on the deepest levels from shifting into the person we know we have the capacity to be. It's the admitting that we didn't have it right, that we weren't right, or that what we were doing was wrong. And if we don't change, right? Like if we don't ever pivot, if we push against it, then we never have to admit or claim those things. So it's just easier to stay in the old where it's comfortable. But again, is it really that comfortable? When you are on the journey to go inward, you are going to realize things about yourself in the past that might be hard pills to swallow because things are meant to get better for you. This is what goes with the territory of transformation. You asked for growth. You asked for abundance. It's not always comfortable. It's not always, it's not always unicorn and sprinkles and glitter. Your perspective is going to change. You are going to have to face the old versions of you and feel the discomfort of seeing things differently. You are going to want to judge the old you for needing to know better. You are going to want to cringe at things you did in the past and thoughts you've had in the past. You are going to want to just quickly move on. You are going to want to just quickly integrate with the new. But for effective and sustainable transformation, you have to integrate with all of it. You can't just simply move on and be in a rush to integrate with the ideal. You have to be able to hold loving, loving, compassionate space where you've been at getting to that place where i'm like i'm either going to die or i'm going to off myself <laughs> spoke volumes to me about the depth of crisis that i was in and so it was more scary for me to stay there because once i started going through that crisis the people who were depending on me to talk i, I didn't have anything to say to them because i'm now internally going through this this thing. I don't know how to label it. I don't know how to describe it. I'm going through this thing. And so I'm going through this thing. And then people who once came to me start questioning me. And then the people who I was once in relationship with, like distance themselves from me, even as close as family, start distancing themselves from me. And so at that point, I wasn't at the at a thought where I'm going to leave this. And I, I that's not where I was. I just knew me being in that specific church at that specific time did not work for me. You take you with you. It's about leaving right. A favorite tendency of ours as humans is to play into the concept of pointing the finger and saying, you're doing this to me. Making others guilty so that we have the justification enough to leave or to change course. We're not talking a very straightforward confrontation toward another person for how they've wronged you. Victimization is real and abundant. We're talking about justifying the changes that you want to make for yourself and your personal happiness by subtle and often unconscious blame towards another person. It's the dynamic of someone or something else has to be wrong in order for you to be right. Find the cause of your unhappiness within you before you move on to the something different. Otherwise, you will take you with you and all the dynamics that go with it. And so I left and I went to another church uh, temporarily. I didn't know it was how temporary it was. At the time, I was like, I'm going to go here because, again, there was a sense of community that I felt that I needed. There was a spiritual obligation that I felt like I need, needed to fulfill. And so I went there. And then when I got there, even though the environment was different, the culture was different. So many of the internal dialogues uh, that I had showed up at that space. And so at that point, it was like, okay, I'm not going to get any rest 
And leaving that, I mean, honestly, it required me to just say, hey, whatever comes with this, whatever happens behind this, you're going to have to deal with. And I think that's what people don't understand about like when you make have moments, they, they have to be solely about you. It has to be completely and utterly about you because the moment that you involve somebody else in your decision-making process about yourself, in a, especially in a space like that, you're going to self-destruct and you're going to continue to self-sabotage. And I think that's the thing for me that drove me to that point where I, I got to a place where I go, okay, I'm not okay. And I need to be. I believe all human beings at their core want to feel of value. They want to feel like they're making contribution. And I believe that we are meant to be of deep service in this world. It's a form of expression. And I believe that's kind of the point. If you were to ask me, like, what is the point of the human experience? I would say expression. And expressing through service to me is the ultimate satisfaction. However, I do not believe that it should be at the sacrifice of self. When we are too imbalanced in the altruism of it is about service and it is about the sacrifice of self, to me, that ventures into a territory that can feel obligatory. And when your service or impact is motivated through obligation, you will hit a wall. It will start to feel resentful at some point. You might hide it really well. You might not be honest with yourself about it but there will be contempt. I believe the best kind of impact that you can have on other people and in the world is impact through joy, service through love, and service through self. I can't have service through self if myself is the last on the list. That service is not going to feel that great. That impact is not going to be as potent if my impact coming through myself as an expression is grounded in a self that is the last thing on her to-do list. And putting yourself first so that you can serve with the most potency can oftentimes feel like it's breaking its own rule because we're told it's about service, we're told it's about impact. And so when we venture into the territory of doing things for ourselves by putting our happiness first, versus all of the giving that might be happening right now and overabundance of giving in your life. When you step out of your duty, air quotes, when you step out of obligation, what will happen? What is the punishment that the old rules have told you will occur? Once I realized that I had to put my happiness first and when I started doing that, my service and my impact got exponentially better. How do you actually do that? What does it actually look like? More with Michael on the next episode of Just Being Seen. SVB here, hoping that you're coming off this episode inspired and challenged to see how good it can get for you in your journey to showing up and being seen in your gifts. If you're desiring the crash course to deepening into the truth of who you are and embodying that and taking action from that place, you are going to want to get on the wait list for the next round of Mind Over Matter. Head on over to shaunavanbogart.com forward slash M-O-M waitlist. And if you're loving this series, guess what? There's bonus episodes, behind the scenes video and other discussions happening over on the Just Being Patreon community. Join in on the fun at patreon.com forward slash just being. 
And as always, the best compliment that you can give me in this work is to take 30 seconds to leave a review over on iTunes. Just Being is produced by Jeremy Enns and the team at Counterweight Creative. Special thanks to the variety of people who've had their hands on some aspect of this creative piece, including my featured guests, and to the right-hand women that I am honored to call my team. Kelly Elizabeth, Jess Butler, I see you, I appreciate you, and know that your support in this work is changing the lives of women around the world.